0: Welcome, Legionaries, to episode twenty-five of Legion Cast: The First Heretic by Aaron Demsky Bowden. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me is my co-host Brandon, who's now back from vacation, and joining us is a special guest and friend of the podcast, Martin Emery. Say hi, guys!
1: Welcome, Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and always forgotten but never by me, possessed Marines. Welcome to Legion Cast. Uh, great to be here. Great to be back from
2: vacation. Uh, And Martin, always a pleasure to have you on as well. Thank you very much, guys. Pleasure to be here talking about one of the best books in the Horus Heresy.
0: I absolutely agree. It is a great book. I think, I don't know that Aaron Dembski Bowden's written a story that I don't like. He's easily one of their best authors.
1: Definitely agree. If you can make me like the Word Bearers, you've done a very good job. All right, should we talk about some hobby news here? Because we've had a a few different announcements. Uh, I have not gotten a chance to talk about Epic since that was announced. Uh, as well as we had another console, uh, do you guys have any uh, any thoughts on the the new Legion champion that's been announced?
0: Yeah, I thought it it looks fine. Um, it's a little lackluster in a couple of respects. I'm not real keen that it's uh, loyalist only. I'm much more in the wheelhouse of a model that works for both sides that you can modify. You know, I think it's it's probably easy enough to modify, but uh, I think making it very imperial is kind of lame. I would prefer something a little more modular. I, I like modular kits, is what I mean.
2: I really don't think he's too bad for non-imperial. Because I think you could do him as a really good Emperor's champion. As much as it, uh, Emperor's children children champion, as much as anyone else. Uh, I like it. It, If anything, it, it resolves a lot of the issues we've had with the other Mark VI cha- uh, heroes that look a little bland he doesn't
1: yeah um i i kind of feel the same i think you could probably just head swap the laurel and he'd be able to fit into any legion really um the that was kind of an interesting choice although i guess for the 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 idea of being a champion uh, that makes sense honestly for me the the thing that i most don't like is the combi melta only because from a gameplay perspective I'm never giving a champion a Kami Melta. Um, champion's barely going to get a gun, um, for the most part. For me, I don't really like when they when they make these these kits with one kind of very niche weapon option. Just throw a bolt pistol on him, and if somebody wants to put a weapon, a special weapon on it, they can do that on their own.
2: I mean, they could have led into the meta idea and just shoved a lovely shotgun on the side, but uh...
1: well, I'm definitely glad they didn't do that. <laughs> But yeah, uh, he's fine. Um, He doesn't, I'm not like, wow, this is amazing. But I'm not like, this is bad in any way. Um, I think he's a good sculpt. um, And I think, you know, definitely some opportunities for glow-ups from your own hobby perspective, I think.
0: I guess, I mean, I'm really looking at it now, but um, they've listed it as a loyalist champion, but he's not exactly festooned with like Aquila's and Imperial iconography. So it would be very easy, as you guys said, to swap it to something else. Uh, I still think that the other champion model that comes with the master signal from forge world is a better model. He's got like the uh, down uh, downward pointed sword, Uh, It it just looks a little more dynamic, uh, a little more vicious, a little more in your face. And I I think I just like that one better. Yeah,
1: out of that kit, I would have preferred an updated Master of Signal to get rid of those little chicken legs.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I got to agree there.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, the other big piece of news, and I know that we talked about this a lot. And by we, I mean you talked about this a lot. But uh, Epic's coming back and it's going to take place in the Heresy, which I think is awesome. Um, I'm probably not going to buy the initial box because I just don't have a massive excitement for Solar Auxilia. It's just not my flavor of the game. So I'll probably wait for some kind of specifically Legion kit. Um, but I'm really excited about the Plastic Titan weapons. That's awesome. Um... And then I'm really, really excited about the Plastic Direwolf kit because I have heard nothing but horror stories about putting the resin one together. So those Titan kits are... The plastic ones are also well-designed that I'm really looking forward to seeing what can be done with that Plastic Direwolf.
2: Yeah, this is going to be... I think I said in my cast the other week that it's make going to make or break the... Next 10 years a hobby for me. Um, This could be the game that changes Games Workshop. Or it could be the game that stagnates it. Um, The rules previews we've seen so far look really good. But, yeah. I'm just happy it's coming. And I think it's going to be a good thing for the heresy community.
1: I, I agree. Um, it's it's really nice and refreshing to see the Heresy community getting so much support, and I love having the the Epic game under the Specialty Games banner. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this will do a lot for that studio, um, and that's that's what I'm really hopeful for. Because I mean, for the most part, what we've seen out of out of the Specialty Games Studio Games Workshop, it's it's mostly hits, um, Heresy. All the, the other small games, Titanicus was excellent. I'm probably most excited about the fact that they said they are not abandoning Titanicus. That was a big worry for me for Epic. And I love Titanicus as, as of itself. So it's really great to see that they're not going to be abandoning that rule system because I think it's one of the best they've ever done.
0: So one thing that I really like about the whole edition is that it's going to give at least the model line for aeronautica imperialis and titanicus a second wind uh we know that we haven't been seeing a lot of new kits for those games for a long time but uh even if they're not getting new kits we're gonna see sales i know like the hobby shops here around town um a lot of the Aeronautica stuff and a lot of the Titanicus stuff just sold out right away because of the, this new announcement. So seeing that get a breath of fresh air is really nice, just from like the selling the models standpoint, I think.
1: Are we missing any news here? Anything else we really need to talk about? Or can we uh, can we jump into this excellent book?
0: It's a bit of a... Uh, do we want to talk about what's on our hobby tables?
1: Yes, we should.
0: You're going to kick that off?
1: Well... I can kick it off because it's very easy for me. There's nothing on my hobby table right now. Um, I just got back from vacation, so I'm kind of taking a second to assess and decide what projects do I want to focus on right now. You know, I've got some Dark Angels stuff. I've got some, uh, I don't think I've talked about it on the podcast, but I've started Emperor's Children, and uh, so I'm going to gonna try working on them a little bit as well, um, as well as my my Lord of the Rings uh hobbies uh projects as well so a bunch of different directions i can go just kind of trying to decide which direction i want to take off with what i'm feeling motivated on right now
2: so it's been a while since i've been on your show um last i was on i was working my word bearers and they're still ongoing i'm working on a variety of different lists for them for the upcoming Pyrex open and then the warzone houston that will be down at the end of the fall but They've sort of all been put aside, because I've been on a mad kick this summer, and I'm currently got uh, about 80 guardsmen sitting on my painting table, plus six Lehman Russes um, attempting to get my militia up and running. Um, yeah, it's... that's not even a fraction of the list, but, you know.
0: What uh, what guard regiment are you going with?
2: Oh, it's... Um, everyone. The They're going to be tied to my word bearers, so it's... A mixture of everyone, you know, everyone they can drag and throw in the battlefield to act as yeah. Jaff.
0: Very cool. Are you going, uh, do you, do you have like a paint scheme picked out for your Lehman Russes? Because I've never painted one, but they look really fun to paint. So are you going to do like camo scheme? You're going to do like heretic kind of cult theme? Um, what, are you, what are you going with? They're
2: going, they're going to, uh, word bearers red. They're going to match with the rest of the army. Um, a lot of them are being repainted from a color scheme I had from Iron Warriors back in the day. So it's just a matter of me slabbering red paint over the top of them and then just highlighting them up. I've got a set of decals I've been using from the Imperial Knights to put like little dragons on them. But yeah, Very they're all cool. red. Very cool.
0: Yeah. I like the sound of that. I have been working on a couple of dreadnoughts. I finished up my Redemptor dreadnought for 40K. And I also finished up one of my Leviathan Dreadnoughts for my Ultramarines. I was pretty happy with that. I'm kicking myself for so many years. I've been sleeping on the uh, water transfers. I've just been too stubborn to do it. And then finally, I went ahead and did it on this one. And I only used a couple of them, but it looks really good. And I'm pretty happy with it. So after that, uh, I was talking to Brandon. I'm either going to get into my Invictara Scissor or Bobby G. And I'm nervous to dig into either one of them. So I'm probably going to flip a coin and just see where it lands.
1: Just paint Bobby G already. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Do it. I'm
0: a bad painter and I'm scared.
1: You're not a bad painter. All right, do you want to stop the recording and we can jump into the book?
0: Yeah, I forgot I was in charge here. Welcome back, everyone. We're going to be talking about The First Heretic by Aaron Dembski-Bowden, a pretty good author and a pretty good story. Now, the story rewinds the clock about 40 years from what we're familiar with, and that's a bit of a shock, but it, it really sets the scene for this important kind of finding-yourself story that the Word Bearers find themselves on. And we start off on a planet called Kor, uh, right? Or... Uh, why am I blanking on this now? Uh, Kerr, sorry. We're starting off on a planet Kerr, where the, this converted populace that the word bearers have brought into compliance, and it's a very different scene from what we're used to, because in the past we've seen all these brutal compliance campaigns of these foreign civilizations getting hammered into this imperial mold, But the word bearers have a very different approach to that. And maybe Martin can enlighten us as to how they go about their compliance campaigns, because it's very different from what we're used to.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, the world we're introduced to, if this is your first Horus Heresy book, and you've only read 40k novels, seems the perfect Imperial world. Um, There is a lot of people wandering around being very loyal to the Emperor and the Imperium. With some big religious overtones. Um, A big planet-wide cult worshipping the emperor. Which, you know, isn't supposed to be a thing, but, you know, feels really normal for people in the 41st millennium. Um, Right,
0: so 40k, this is just business as usual. It's, It's a paradise, in fact. It's a great place to live.
2: Yeah, um... This is what the word bearers do. They make perfect planets. This is the city we're introduced to is their perfect city.
0: Well, that's where I come into play because the emperor has commanded that my loyal ultramarines basically quarantine this planet. They tell all of these citizens to evacuate their cities and they've got like seven days and at the dawn of the seventh day they can make a single distress call, and then the ultramarines are going to flatten all of their cities from orbit. And the reason the emperor has commanded this to be done is because these are... these citizens are faithful in a religious sense, which in the 31st millennia is a big no-no because the Imperium of Man is, is distributing this imperial truth, this secular belief that there are no gods, There is no religion, you know, mankind will only advance itself if it throws off these archaic shackles. And so the Emperor, instead of just talking to his son, decides to make a grandiose show of the whole thing.
1: One thing I found really interesting in this scene as well is that the Ultramarines don't tell the people, hey, this is why you're in trouble. This is what happened here. This is the problem. They just show up, they say, get out of the city, and then level it. No explanations whatsoever. Which I thought was an interesting choice. Because you know this planet is loyal, just allegedly
2: misguided. Um, Well, I think that, jumping forward a little bit, but not too far, we'll stay in this part one section. Um, When we finally see Gulliman appear... And he's asked, talk about the world. He refers to the world as non-compliant. So as far as he's concerned, as far as the, of the, the Ultramarines are concerned, these people are non-compliant and they will fire on people who disagree with them. Like in the opening chapters of the book, the Ultramarines, the riot starts because they're clearing people out of their homes and they just bolt gun a pile of civilians to death. This is a non-compliant world and they're treating it like a non-compliant world, but a non-compliant world without a military.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's just very interesting. It's very stark to me. You know, We get this idea, the, the Great Crusade is supposed to be reuniting all of these worlds into the Imperial fold. And so even if, from Gilliman's view, it's a non-compliant world, they don't even show up and say, hey, you should rejoice. We've brought to you the Imperial truth, and we're going to bring you into the fold properly. It's immediately you're all crap, and if you don't listen to us without hesitation, we're going to shoot you. Which is not outside of the mold of a regular compliance. It's just very interesting how, you know, it's the Great Crusade is spun to be this idea, and it's not
2: even remotely
1: executed that way, which is a theme we've seen across many of the books.
2: One of the interesting things, I think, to defend the Ultramarines, which I don't like doing, obviously, but um is that we don't actually see any negotiation with anyone of any import. Our only point of view through the entirety of this mess is a young girl. She is no one of importance, no one in authority. She holds a kind of ad hoc position where she's not even a part of society as a whole. So we don't know what communications through correct channels the Ultramarines have done. The Ultramarines may have shown up and been like, hey, yeah.
0: I think there is, uh, in that scene with Cyrene, there is a just a tiny bit of hesitancy on behalf of the Ultramarines because she calls out this, you know, uh, kind of line legionary, and I think she calls him like a, a false angel or something like that. And this Ultramarine says, look at me, I'm wearing the Imperial colors. I... I am here uh, by the Emperor's command, vacate the city or you'll be fired upon basically. And up until that point, we hadn't seen any of this. The Ultramarines hadn't been saying anything beyond get out of the city. And it's not until Cyrene says, you know, why are you doing this? We're loyal. The Ultramarines are kind of like, look, we're not, at least this legionary anyway, is more or less like, look, this isn't, exactly what we had in mind either but these are our orders we are here because the emperor told us to
2: yeah and and just to i wonder that particular scene with our ultramarine is one of the like i want to see some artwork of it because it's beautiful in my mind Cyrene is standing on a balcony over this giant imperial city and the ultramarine is talking to her from a land speeder right a proteus land speeder so he's up front on this little chair it is really gothic when you put your mind into it and like, now my brain is in always going to be thinking about these little Proteus Landspeeders really being police vehicles. Right. They're, f- they're for crowd control, zooming around, doing little bits of work.
1: Especially, you know, it especially gets vivid in your mind when he swings the heavy bolter at her face. And, you know, it talks about how the barrel is the size of her head. Um, I agree, it's a very vivid scene.
0: So it comes to a, you know, the the morning of the seventh day, the... Imperial citizens of the world send out their single distress call and they send it to, you know, the people that brought their world to compliance, those that they trust, the word bearers. And every single ship, legionary, and servitor connected to the word bearers in any way show up to this planet. And a very grandiose scene follows basically where uh Lorgar the primarch of the Word Bearers who have we seen him up until this point I don't recall he might have had a brief cameo somewhere earlier in the books but Lorgar is the spitting image of the emperor he is this shiny golden figure and he gets on the the vox because when the word bearers get into the system they see all these awesome ships and they say what are you doing and the Ultramarines are, you know, basically holding a smoking gun to this planet. And so Lorgar's outraged at this and, and how could he not be? This is a world that he conquered. You know, it's like busting into your brother's room and breaking all this stuff. Your brother's going to be mad when he gets home. So, you know, Lorgar and does he actually talk to Gilliman or is there just a summons to the planet? Sur- I think they're just summoned to the planet surface. They're not given any explanation.
2: Um, so if I remember right, uh so the fleet arrives, which was a spectacular scene of all the different aspects of the the entire chapter, not only in the chapter, the entire legion showing up. So it's talking about all the different ships. And you get this through a point of view character in the chapter of the um serrated sun, who will be our point of view chap characters for majority of this book from that point on. Um but they're listening to a speech from Logar about trying to find out what happened, and then that, that Speech is interrupted by Gulliman telling them to get down to the surface, and that everyone has to be down there.
1: Yeah, and it's it's really interesting when they arrive. You know, they're the word bearers are just irate at what they're seeing, um, and eventually they all get gathered together. And it talks about how there's a hundred thousand word bearers facing down one hundred ultramarines. So just a little bit of mismatch of odds but these Ultramarines and uh, Gilliman are completely undaunted and Malkador shows up and we get into kind of this admonishment of Lorgar. And I think there's a lot we can talk about here about how this is conducted because I find it very interesting uh, that, you know, the Ultramarines say they've done this on... The order of the emperor but he's not here he sent his second Malkador, who is the regent of terra which you know in my mind it kind of clicked to, to me i was like why is the regent of terra handing out this censure on a very far away world you know it just kind of seems outside of his office and i'm not gonna lie since i had not read this book
2: before i was like where the heck is the Emperor? Like, this, he should be the one doing this. Well, before we get to that point, um, I think if you have been reading the series, it makes sense where Malkador was there. Because obviously the last book in Nemesis, we get that lovely reveal that Malkador is the head of the assassins. Like, he is someone really important. Now, Logar... Lo, 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 Logar? Logar doesn't even think about that as a thing. He just... I mean, he walks up and starts wailing on everyone he can get his hands on, which mostly is the Stigulite because, you know, he's he's in full this is a conspiracy mode the Ultramarines and Stigulite have turned on the Emperor what have they done to my beautiful cities mm-hmm. and has a complete and utter toddler breakdown.
1: Yeah, and there, there's no doubt, you know, here that Malkador is an incredibly important figure it's just a question of office and who's the appropriate person to be handing out things like this
0: So, it's weird being an ultramarine, but I know how Lorgar feels. I'm going to let you guys in on some inside baseball here. I'm the youngest of five children. And if you're the youngest, the worst thing... Well, hold on, no. If you're an older sibling, the worst thing you can do to your little brother if they're throwing a fit is accuse them of throwing a tantrum. And that's exactly what Gilliman does to Lorgar. Lorgar hits Malkador... Lorgar hits Gilliman in the chest plate with his big Crozius and cracks Gilliman's breastplate, knocks him to the ground. And all Gilliman does when he gets up is brush himself off and say, Are you done being a petulant child? That is the fastest way to break your little brother's spirit. And I hope Manipal doesn't listen to this.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's. I am not a huge fan of the Primarch of the Wordbearers, Euryalion. Logar. I don't... He he has some problems, and they are in display at that moment. This is the moment when most of the other Primarchs who I would consider higher on my tier ranking of smart, would be going oh, something feels really wrong. But he's so caught up in this, like, personal drive to prove that he is something special that he is the chosen one that he has foreseen some chosen power uh destiny that yeah
1: well he acts
2: very within his
1: character that we get to learn more about throughout the book uh you know jumping ahead a little bit he talks about how he sees himself as the only one of his brothers except for maybe magnus who is not a warrior um uh, And so, you know, I, knowing his character at the end of the book, now how I do, his behavior at the beginning of the book feels very within character for him.
0: So, something that Manipal and I touched on in the Fulgrim books is talking about how it's an often overlooked fact that these. Characters are superhuman in every way. They're not just bigger, taller, faster, stronger. They have superhuman emotions that we're dealing with. And Lorgar, Brandon just said it. You know, he's he was one of the probably one of the only primers that didn't want to be a warrior because he has a a, a much more human element to his character. And the fact that he kind of throws a tantrum, he doesn't want doesn't necessarily want all this bloodshed but you know he's willing to throw a punch it's it's very within character you know
2: so before we go any further because this is actually a good time to mention them um while everyone's gathering all the warbearers gathering our point of view character Argaltal, tal who is our primary hero um is talking about the other people around logar and it's mentioned that with logar and his sort of Cot- coterie of close companions is a guy called Carl, Ther- Carl Therion, who is actually, like, Logar's stepdad, foster dad, the guy who raised Logar when he found him in the pot. He raised him from infants, and he's followed Logar to the stars, and he's the high priest of the wordbearers, and he is continually reminding his son of who he is. And alongside him is Our other friend from previous books, Erebus, who is also there to advise the Primarch. So you've got this character who doesn't believe that he is a warrior being advised by some very shady people. I've got a lot more to say about Erebus, but we'll come back to that later.
1: I was going (laughs) to say shady is the understatement of the year when we're talking about Erebus and Corpharon. Both of them.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the a lot of the interactions we get between Erebus and Corferon, I'm sure we'll come back to it, they're master manipulators, not just when they're talking to Horus or any of the other characters, but they're very manipulative of Lorgar himself. And it's just crazy to see it firsthand.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, should we talk about uh, what happens next with uh, a certain arrival? Yes. Um because there's a big flash of blinding light and a crack of teleportation. And the custodian guard appears with uh, a man. And I, I think this is really fascinating because um, you know I'm, I'm looking at the, the, the notes here that we talk about how the emperor shows up and says, admonishes Lorgar and says, I'm not a god, don't treat me like a god. But also I just showed up in a flash of blinding light and materialized out of nothing, um, which is a very godlike to do. But with all of that, he does appear because one of the things I was wondering, I was like, why didn't he appear in kind of his normal visage that we get to this towering warrior in golden armor? And I thought to myself, well, in his mind, he appears as a regular man. Because that's what he's saying he is, even with all the grandeur around him, like that's the message he's trying to communicate. Now it doesn't land at all, uh, but I think that that is was what he was going for there in appearing as a regular mortal human in a flash of golden blinding light.
2: Well, he appears as everything. This is the big thing, and it's 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 it's, it's, it's kind of lost in the description. Logar, Logar. Get his name wants to write at some point, but Logar only sees the Emperor as this mortal man, and so mm-hmm. does um, Argultal. But Argultal doesn't. As he arrives, you he goes through and he sees every version of the Emperor. Mm-hmm. You see what you want to see, which is why whenever big pieces of art are made of him, you see the glorious leader. You look at him in the wrong way, and you see the weak man behind it all maybe behind it all, maybe it's just one aspect of it. And that's really driven home that it, you know, depends where on the face you look, you see a different thing. So it's a very,
0: very, very, very big contrast between the last story that Martin talked with us about was Mechanicum. When the Emperor shows up in that book, he shows up on Mars when it's raining, which it's never supposed to rain on Mars. And he's kind of coalescing this whole um foretelling of the coming of the Omnissiah and when the Emperor shows up he's like yeah I'm the Omnissiah I am the machine god but in he shows up you know talking to Lorgar he's like look I'm not a god
1: well and that's an interesting point as well because he displays himself to the Mechanicum as a god it talks about a little bit later when when Lorgar is talking to Magnus when he returns to Colchis Lorgar says, I greeted him and said, you are a god. And he said, yep, sure, let's go. So, and he was like, for a hundred years, it was fine. And now he's got
2: a problem with it. This this becomes the question of what was the Emperor's response? Because how much did the Emperor go, no, and at the same time, his ill-advised, ill-advisory go, he really doesn't mean it. Mm-hmm. How many fake words were put in his head to make him think? No, the emperor is cool with it. When he says this, he really means this. Yeah, because the emperor never speaks clearly until obviously this point when he's like, "I've had enough. It's time for me to be clear." <laughs>
0: so I think it's really curious that this is the scene that we get, and the emperor just doesn't sit Lorgar down and have a conversation with him because. If you're a parent, realistically, that's probably the best way to handle a situation with your kid is to just talk to him. I mean, kind of how my dad handled me growing up and it worked out okay, I think. But I think that the Emperor specifically avoided that situation with Lorgar because the Emperor knows Lorgar is Mm -hmm. as much of me as can be. And so the Emperor knows Lorgar is just as persuasive as the Emperor himself can be. So he didn't want to get into this endless debate with Lorgar of, you know, look, Lorgar, I'm not a god. Dad, you are a god. And it would just go on for eternity. And the Emperor, as we find out, kind of a little, it's been hinted at earlier in the books, and as we find out later on, is that the Emperor is on a timetable. He's got a limited amount of time to conquer the galaxy, and time is running out. So he doesn't want to have this drawn out debate with Lorgar. He wants decisive action. No more emperor worship whatsoever.
1: I mean, yeah. And he says, he says it when, when they're there in the ruins of, uh, Monarchia that the, um, the word bearers are one of the largest legions second only to the Ultramarines, And yet their compliance rate is one of the slowest. Um, and that's where we kind of jump into, you know, we can talk about the, the emperor's parenting tech techniques, but, uh, I don't really want to get into that. It's just safe to say that the Horus heresy can be chalked up to monumental scales of bad parenting or how we got here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the emperor is like, you got to speed this up. This is, no more Emperor Worship, and get things done. Which again pushes into this idea of he wants to reunite humanity, but he doesn't really want to reunite humanity. It's much more, it seems to me, it's just about expanding territory.
2: Yeah, I mean, actually the Emperor Worship thing, although it's the thing that Gulliman and the Sigulite actually bang on about, the big thing the Emperor bangs on about is the speed. Mm Mm-hmm. He's like, you guys are here too long. These perfect cities take too long to build. We gotta move. Yeah. Like, he he doesn't like the worship, but he, listening through it again, I was struck by how little that was part of the admonishment. The admonishment was about the speed.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, I don't think Lorgar heard that at all. Um, he really just locked on to the Emperor saying, I'm not a god, and everything else was just noise from that point. Um, and then you know the word bearers kind of get the final insult to injury to their legion which is now they have 20 custodian babysitters um, which they are not happy about at all i i i kind of i see where they're coming from because you know they're like we don't need a babysitter to do what we do but also like If I was offered, hey, you want 20 custodians to run around in your fleet? I would have been like, that's a great asset. But I I, I definitely get where they're coming from and being unhappy about it.
2: Yeah. And they don't dwell too much on it at this point. Because we segue really quickly from that scene to the scene I had to go back to listen to again. Which is Logar Logar in his meditation chamber along with Cartharion and Erebus, and they have a really, really good conversation about the nature of the universe. It starts off with, well, the emperor is a god. And they outline all the reasons why he is. And then they go through what the Primarchs are, and they have this weird conversation where they try and ascribe a role to every Primarch. Now, I've seen this idea pushed around the internet all of the time. The one thing I'm going to say, my <laughs> big reading every time I read it, is the idea people coming up with the who does what, who is what, are Corfarian and Erebus. Everything they're saying is a lie. <laughs> Everything they're saying is sure, solely to make Logar, Logar decide that he's going to do something different, that the Emperor isn't worthy of worship.
0: The manipulation that we see from these two is incredible. They know exactly how to manipulate Lorgar into going on this pilgrimage to find to find himself when realistically it's to expose him to the ruinous powers and win him over because Lorgar's at a very vulnerable stage in his life where he's looking for meaning, he's looking for guidance, and he's looking for a tangible power to follow, and when we get where we're headed, he finds
1: it. I do want to push back on this idea a bit that everything they say in, in that scene in particular is a lie because I, I don't think it's a lie. It's more of a twisting of the truth. Gilliman is an excellent logistician, but they say, you know, oh, all he can do is push papers or whatever. Um, you know, the the lion is a brilliant tactician and Horace is the best of them. Uh, it's just, they... They do what, what master manipulators do, is they take the truth and then they turn it just enough to get you to turn... It It's not a big, you know, immediate 90-degree turn. It's like taking an exit off the highway.
2: Yeah, I mean, when I say it's like... I mean, more of the... I think they overplay the idea that the every Primark had a role. Because they want... Mm-hmm. They really want him to believe that he has this role of being the preacher. Because obviously Kalfarian shows at the end his the darkest thing that he's been hiding from his son is that really he hasn't turned away from the old faith, the faith that Logos stomped out on Cultus, being the worship mm-hmm. of these primordial forces, aka okay, the forces of chaos. And he's yeah. he, he even then admits that so I let some of these cults escape. <laughs> <laughs> and i've been quietly seeding them around just in case we need them and <laughs>
1: it's very alpha legion of them
2: <laughs> yeah and it's
0: just the the absolute scumbag move of a narcissist to leave yourself an out basically so yeah they had this big Compliance campaign on cultus of... Well, not compliance campaign, but it was a it was a holy war, basically, to stomp out these other beliefs. But Corferon was like, maybe we should leave some of these over here, just in case.
2: Well, you see, this is where I can put on my tinfoil hat and start conspiracy theorying up. Because actually, my line is, is that he always knew this was coming. The one character also in the room who doesn't really say much other than toady up is Erebus. And Erebus more i've read into heresy i'm quite a ways ahead i'm not going to try and drop too many spoilers but he makes less and less sense more that's written about him and i can't help but feel that erebus and Carferion were playing chaos from the start
0: i can absolutely believe that
2: i'm, I'm not uh, even ruling out the fact that erebus is really a space marine but not a demon in disguise it <laughs> would make a lot of sense
1: you know um uh yeah i agree to an extent um it does talk about like argol tall says in a conversation during the book that you know Erebus will just follow power um so he will kind of look of who he perceives to be the biggest biggest game in town and try and jump on that boat um so you know maybe it is and i i don't know but maybe maybe he did was like corferon really does have the right idea here so i'm gonna I'm going to jump over here. It definitely seems like Corferon is much more the mastermind of this whole thing. And Erebus is very good at what he does, which is manipulating people, but he's not
2: the original progenitor of this idea. And definitely in this moment, straight after the destruction of Monarchia, he has l- feels like he's lost his father. He's lost the Emperor. And this other man who's always been there as his father steps forward and goes, here son, here's the path. And he latches firmly on. And that scene, that one scene corrupts him. That scene does everything.
1: Well, we, and going back to tales of heresy, we get to kind of see a a reverse of that scene um, in the short story with the word bearers, because they do the compliance on that planet in this book. That is also in that short story and we get to see that he comes out of this his sequestering um, and starts sacrificing people and painting stars on their heads. So um, it definitely it definitely did the trick, and he's already, he is very much on the path from pretty much as soon as they leave Banarchia, Really, um, what blows me away, and this is a theme throughout the entire book, is how well they just completely dupe the custodes. Who are there specifically to watch them for this stuff. Um, it is quite honestly a bit of a masterwork that none of them gets an inkling before...
0: The reveal mm-hmm. at the end of the book as to how that was all done is horrifying.
1: Well, it wasn't really how it was all done. It was one thing they employed in this grand deception, which we will... Right, it,
0: there's a very horrific element to how it's done, but the kind of manipulation and the, you know, uh, Argol Tall is like buddying up to Aquilon, the the lead custodies, and it's all very manipulative, and it's it, it all looks just really gross when you get the whole picture.
2: Yeah, um, I think this is this sequence. They go down to this other, they move to this other planet, and they do a dark compliance or a compliance. And they do it efficiently, and they do it well, and everyone's like, big thumbs up, this is how the uh, word bearers need to go. I don't think there's a huge amount to say about the battle. It's very Space Marine Bolter. Um, they fight some el- some humans who have some weird stuff. Yep.
0: I think the, the only addition we get with this compliance campaign is that they introduce Xenu-73 and Incarnadine. And that... You know, this is the the compliance that we see in Scions of the Storm. That's the story from Tales of Heresy, and it's you know it's a standard compliance. We find out that these people are worshiping a great thunder god that is the spitting image of the Emperor. Uh, but Lorgar says, "Kill every person on this planet." And the the perspective in this book is basically just to introduce uh, Xeno seventy three Xenu seventy three and incarnadine.
1: Well, it's- it also gives us something else very important here, which is that not only are the custodies watching the word bearers, but the word bearers are watching the custodies. And so, you know, it, it actually spends a lot of time with Argol Toll where he's just sitting there watching the uh, custodies fight, and he makes a very interesting observation, which is that even though there's twenty of them all fighting together, they don't fight as a unit; they all fight as individuals which speaks to the nature of their making. They are all individually handcrafted by the Emperor, so they don't have the co- cohesive brotherhood that the Astartes
2: have. Yeah, and it does compare compare and contrast nicely through that b- battle, because you'd get to see the different parts of the Serrated Sun doing what a Space Marine chapter does, which is cool up the Armored Reserves, you've got the Outriders, one of the characters who become a name character writes around on a jet bike, and you get all the different combined arms of Space Marines doing the combined arms Space Marine gig which is very, it's a very well presented battle. It's just not one I'd write home about as being the best in the series.
1: It's actually a, uh, a, one of my preferred battle scenes because of that. Um, it's not just, Oh, look at this one guy being a one man unit running through crushing, you know, these unmodified humans or whatever. Um, uh, but it does show like, you know, they get, they get pinned down, their infantry gets pinned down. So they bring in an armored reserve and then, um, you know, they need to, you know, they need to reinforce an area very quickly. So they send the jet bikes over to do it. It it does function on that unit level. Uh, the other thing that this does is after this compliance is complete and Lorgar is wanting to speak to his legion kind of because he, you know, he's come out of this, this sequestration and has a new path for them. And he said, he says to the custodians, Hey, I'm gonna to talk to my legion. This is kind of a just us thing. And the custodies are like, no, we're not leaving. And the entire legion basically bears down on them as like, yes, you are leaving. And they say, well, this is a fight we can't win. So they they teleport out.
0: Lorgar basically calls the custodies leftover parts and afterbirth to their face. And when the custodies refuse to leave after that, every single word bearer there aims a bolter at them
2: yeah it's one of my favorite things about that scene is as they say oh this is just legion members we brought up uh, zeno and then we brought up the robot that he works with several of the robots stay behind but all the tech priests leave mm-hmm. the robots are saying they're deactivated but they've been inducted into the space marine chapter and at the time when this book was written it wasn't a thing in 40k on the table. It's now definitely a thing you can see on the table where you have Mechanicum units that get inducted into the, the Brotherhoods.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I thought that was a really cool element that they, they added to it. Uh, I know we talked about it a bit at the beginning, but I do, I do wish that there was a little bit more with like the Incarnadine. Um, it was a very interesting concept that it, just for the sake of length of the book, I'm sure wasn't expounded upon.
2: Yeah. Um, I think this is the scene after this sequence, they move to go off to the word bearers home world of Colchis to sit yes. down. So I think it's time to double back and discuss Cyrene because her little path.
1: Yeah. I'd like to discuss Cyrene. And then I, if, if you guys are cool with it, I'd like to kind of get into a, a deep discussion about the character of Argyle Tull as mm-hmm. well. Um, because, he's our central character and he's also a very interesting yeah guy but let's talk about cyrene for now she is from monarchia um she witnesses the city die and is blinded because of it and then is rescued by argol tall after wandering through the wreckage of the city and the word bearers decide that she is like blessed
2: yeah and she gets put in a cell with like any other initiate and gets fed and but she's blind, so she doesn't know anything what's going on. She feels like the bed's just too hard. and But she's happy to be alive and happy to be with the people who saved her. And although she talks about not being faithful before the incident, this faith of being protected starts to grow in her. Yeah, I, I love that quote at the beginning of the book. Uh, when the
1: stars fell and the seas boiled and the earth burned, my faith didn't die. That is when I began to believe God is real and he hates us.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it sets the tone. I mean, that is... I mean, she carries that feeling well, but it's also in the mind of every single word-bearer.
1: Yes. I mean, even after the admonishment, they don't stop referring to him as the god-emperor.
2: No. Not and for a any, second. If any... I mean, the other quote that's near the start, and I think I was meaning to talk about it a minute, it, it's Logar's... Logar's quote. Where is it? fear I pull it up... Uh So, if a man gathers 10,000 suns in his hand, if a man sees 100,000 worlds with his sons and daughters, granting them custody of the galaxy itself, and man guides a million vessels between infinite starts with a mere thought, and I pray tell me, how are you able to see such of a man as anything less than a god? Like, they got all the evidence they need to know that that thing that destroyed their city is a god.
1: Yeah, Yeah, Definitely.
2: Even when he arrived and then was like, don't worship me, kneel, and forces everyone a- to kneel in the entire, like... Yeah, through sheer force of will. Will, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Cyrene's a very important
1: character in mm-hmm. this book. She ends up being a confessor for the Legion, um, and-, and plays a pretty pretty big role in that regard. Especially, you know, she kind of becomes a sounding board, particularly for Tal and, uh... Is it Zephon? Am I correct? Zephon, yes. The- yeah, Zephon, the chaplain of the serrated sun. Yeah. Um, and you kind of get more of an insight to their characters. But let's talk about Argyle Tall a little bit, because he's you know the hero of our book. And I put hero in air quotes there, because he's really a fascinating guy, because he's very noble in his demeanor, but he is also 150,000% a filthy heretic. Like... <laughs> There, there's no there's no question of that. So Even as an
0: ultramarine, I really like the guy.
2: <laughs> he demonstrates an idea that's been knocked around in a lot of the Black Library books and actually continues through the entire series. Um, I think a lot of what I'm about to say now stands true for someone like Abaddon, especially in the latter series of the books, where there are characters who are only on the traitorous side because they are loyal to the chapter and to their Legion. He is dyed in wool, loyal to his brothers.
1: Yeah. Well, and he is loyal to Lorgar unquestioningly, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, it does talk about how above any other Legion, the word bearers are loyal to their Primarch. uh, but yeah, it, it, it's it's fascinating to see that you know he's so noble that he willingly follows his primark into damnation, and not just willingly follows, runs ahead. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's he he just fascinates me as a character because everything about this guy and in, in his demeanor says like this guy should be a loyalist.
0: So it's it's important. We kind of skipped over this, but when the emperor shows up. And he uses this big psychic shockwave, basically, to drive everyone to their knees and demand that they stop worshipping him. Lorgar is distraught at this, and it's Argil tall that helps him stand back up. Mm-hmm. And that's an ongoing theme that Lorgar can lean on Argil tall. He's kind of his stone, basically, to, to lean on. And he's just an all around solid guy. And we see an even better, like, kind of brotherly perspective in the next uh, Word Bearers book, uh, Betrayer, where uh, Argold Tall's best friend is Karn the Betrayer. So we, we see a really interesting, we see even more of this really interesting character development or uh, character element, I should say, as the books go on.
1: Well, and it, it really makes you wonder with just because of the type of character that Argyll Tal is if he had been in the room instead of Erebus and Corpheron, this would have gone a very different direction. No. I think so, anyway. It, you know, it might have still ended up at the same
2: place. I, I'm, I'm going to... Because I think if you have to take Corpharian out of the room. Yeah. If, because, as you said, they are loyal. The only one who isn't loyal to Logar in the entire book... Is Corpharion because he isn't a word bearer. That right, true. he's
0: actually a demi Astartes. Yeah. And there's there's a little bit of animosity throughout the Legion that Corpharion is referred to as the master of the faith or the keeper of the faith, mm-hmm. something like that. And the rest of the Astartes in the Legion kind of resent him that he is in such a senior role.
2: Yeah, because he's too old to become an Astartes, a bit like. Um lionel johnson's luther, friend luther. luther just like yep. a bit like luther like he's this old guy who's in terminator armor and like he's not really that great but because the Primarch loves him because he's his dad he hangs around but he's also the only guy there who doesn't have to be totally loyal to the Primarch.
0: yeah and that's a tough call And um, th- another good quote from that conversation where uh Corferon and Erebus are talking to Lorgar after the shaming is Lorgar asks them, you know, when you look at me, what what do you see? What of the Emperor do you see in me? And they say something like, um, it is it is your humanity and your uh there was an element to him and the quote is grief beyond the capacity of a mortal mortal heart to contain. And that's how, that's how deep, uh, emotions run is that it's, it's too much for him to keep in. And that's why he is so reactive in this way. That's why he feels the need to, to go out on this grand quest that we're about to get into.
1: Yeah. So I think we can, we can press forward a bit here. So, this this conversation, uh, you know, we, we return to Colchis, and you know, there's a celebration, but it's also kind of tinged with everyone on Colchis knows about the uh, the censure as well. So while they're celebrating that the legion is returned, there's also kind of this air of, you know, you alone among the emperor's legions have been censured in this way, which is not strictly speaking the truest i think um because there are two legions which we talk about that are lost and purged so they probably got censured beforehand um but that's that's more tinfoil hat conspiracy theory in my opinion but the the point of it is you know uh there there's kind of this this air but despite that, you know, the people of Colchis are pretty overjoyed that the, the word bearers have returned. And Magnus is actually there at, at Lorgar's request, request because of all the Primarchs, all the other Primarchs, Magnus is the one that Lorgar is closest to. Uh, it actually talks about later in the book um, how... He, he never was able to develop a relationship with Ferris Manus because all he wanted to do was forge weapons of war while Lorgar was in the Imperial Palace with Magnus and other Imperial dignitaries debating philosophy and all of this other kind of stuff. Um, and it makes sense, I think, uh, of all the Primarchs. I definitely would have picked Magnus to be closest to Lorgar because he's, besides Lorgar, I would say the least warlike, maybe vulcan being in behind him there, but Vulcan definitely still has a violent streak what? in him, um, especially if you're Eldar children.
2: <laughs> <laughs> These, I mean, the two Primarchs are the two Psychers. They are the two master manipulators of the warp. Logar doesn't quite realize he is, but he is. Mm-hmm. And they are reflections of each other. The, you get a lot of that in the 40k lore, that you get one, two Primarchs who reflect, and those two are the Rogaldorn and Perturabo, but of the scholars. But they get on, because they're nerds, so, you know.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: I think a a really funny quote from that interaction with Ferris Manus was when (laughs) Lorgar says, you know, this is when, to thank Lorgar for reinforcing Ferris Manus' position at one point, Ferris Manus crafts the iconic, or, or iconic Crozius Illuminarum for Lorgar and gives it to him. And Lorgar says, I don't know what to say. And Ferris says, let us say nothing when we agree on nothing and have nothing but awkwardness between us. And (laughs) that's the end of the conversation. (laughs) Ferris is just like, I want nothing to do with you. Take your stupid hammer and get away from me.
1: Yeah. um, I do. I really enjoy this conversation between um, Lorgar and Magnus. Um, Although, I do think it does a bit of disservice to Magnus's character, in a way. Um, Because Magnus is supremely arrogant, we know this. So...
0: There is nothing... There is no disservice that this book can do to Magnus that Magnus has not already done to himself.
2: Um, I think the main take-home from this conversation is there is a line... Magnus looks straight at the Aurelian and says, I do nothing wrong. Yeah, that's true. Which is perfection.
0: And then he teleports out of the room and totally wrecks it. If Magnus knows everything, he would know not to use a teleportation device inside of a confined space.
2: I don't know. It was hilarious because he made everyone think that he was attacked, which may have been the point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it's... It's a really fun scene. There's a lot going on there. I, I definitely like this scene, but it does paint the very arrogant picture of Magnus the Red. I love it.
1: it definitely, yeah. Um, okay, yeah. I feel like I didn't read that as well as you guys did there, so I appreciate. That's why we have these panels. Um, right after this, though, we get uh, we get our, our good pal Cyrene again, and. What fascinate is fascinating here is she's blind. the only thing she can see is Lorgar. Um, and I think, and I don't know that it's ever truly explained, this is really just his psychic eminence that she's seeing but uh, it you know it, it is quite interesting.
0: It's, it's really neat that L- later on in the book, Lorgar talks about how he never had the mastery like Magnus did. So he, he kind of suppressed it and he never really delved into it. And it's not until the, the later scenes in the book during the Dropsite Massacre where that all comes to the fore and he like really kind of unleashes it. And he's got this very kind of emotion bound way of using his psychic power. So when he's put in a situation with Cyrene, Cyrene and he's kind of almost kind of uh, I don't want to say he's very focused on the awe of this survivor of the you know the perfect city maybe that starts to shine out a little more and that's why she can see him even though she's blind he is emotionally engaged in what's happening here and that's why she can see him.
1: Yeah it's it's definitely an interesting interesting thought and uh you know i kind of like how this scene is done and lorgar really seems to be kind of fascinated with her and names her to be a confessor specifically to the serrated Sun. and he also kind of develops at this point his plan to do this pilgrimage through the stars and kind of break up the word bearers fleets and you know they're going to kind of all go a different direction and basically his thought is well the emperor is a god I know this. The emperor doesn't want to be worshipped. I'm going to go find a god that wants to be worshipped. Or is worthy of worship. Um, And, you know, Corpharon and Erebus are like, that sounds like a grand idea. And, you know, under their breath, they're like, I know just the ones.
2: (laughs) Well, I don't think they're actually under the breath about it, because I think they've got their own religion, their old school religion, and they're like, this is what we were told to do to find the gods. This is the path of the pilgrimage. These are even star shots where men to follow.
1: Yeah, and and when they go on this pilgrimage, they end up at Cadia, right next to the Eye of Terror.
0: And it's it's revealed later on in this arc that cult, both Colchis and Cadia were seeded by the ruinous powers to have very similar languages, so only the people born on these planets could understand the reading and writing of. Uh, yeah, it's it's all kind of woo woo. We get into the tin tin foil uh, realms. Which an, another thing, speaking of tin, in the early descriptors of Colchis, they talked about how at one point it was like a machine world or something like that. In the the orbit of this planet is this mass debris field. So, like, not to diverge, but do you guys think it was Necrons or Men of Iron or some kind of other unknown race? I know it's it's very conspiracy theory or like uh, kind of can um, all guesswork at this point, but do, do you guys have any insight to that?
2: My feeling of it, looking at uh, references and when it comes up, is that it is probably some sort of man of iron stronghold that's been destroyed. Because whenever you talk about the planet itself, the people are living in dirt huts, uh, there's a talk right at the start when we get one of the, the, the real start of the books, so a bit where Erebus comes along to pick up um, Kaferi, or well, not Kefari- Um ago from his parents and that talks about them being in this dirt hovel and it comes back to that later as well so i i visualize it as some sort of you know post apocalyptic so, fallout wasteland
0: maybe the world is so primitive because there's a prohibition against certain technologies because they fought a war against the men of iron
2: yeah or it's just been blasted back to kingdom come oh, hasn't come back, back yet
1: age, yeah makes so sense split. i mean both of them are possible um i don't think that we we really know um but it is fun to theorize. Um, So anyway, they they end up on Cadia, realize, hey, we have like kind of the base. My understanding is, you know, it it would be the Cadian and Colchisian language are kind of like the French and Italian to Latin. Like they share a base. Okay, They share a root, but they're not the same language.
2: So this is where we go some deep lore. They are the same language. Because okay. the um custodies don't understand why they're the same language. The custodies look at the language and go, these aren't the same. This language isn't the same. But what it is, it's an old idea back from dark ages of Warhammer. They are speaking dark tongue. Dark tongue is the what is the words that allow all the followers of chaos to understand them each other no matter where they're from culturally Mm. and the custodies are incapable of understanding dark tongue because they are spawn of the anathema spawn of the emperor
1: okay interesting i did not know that um but the word bearers meet these people the custodians are immediately like, we just need to wipe these people out. They look at their eyes. They're like, oh, they all have the same eye color. Kill them. <laughs> um, which I was like, that was that was quick.
2: Well, <laughs> glowing purple eye color right next to a warp storm. I mean, and they're speaking a language that you say you understand and we don't.
0: Right, and no! you know, like, <laughs> con- consider the setting. It is a planet on the edge of a bleeding wound of reality. The people here are probably not going to be normal.
1: I don't know. I prefer my lack of context way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's very 40k. It's, it's very 30k, in fact. It's like, ooh, they're slightly different. Better not have anything to do with that.
1: Yeah. Uh, and obviously, Lorgar does not immediately destroy them. Uh, they meet this, this woman named Ingefell, who is like a prophet type Girl thing, from from Cadia, and they they go deep into the mountains and they conduct this ritual. And there's this one custodian there who's like, "Hey, this is bad juju. We're done here. This this needs to happen." And kudos to the guy for drawing down on a Primark in a room full of legionaries. Like respect. It was never gonna work out for you, but respect. <laughs>
0: Like, yeah, he wasn't going to get the primark, but he still killed, like, four or five Astartes in half a second.
2: Well, I think to get to that point, the the important point is, is that he doesn't just draw on them. They go down, and Logar is in this ritual site. There are eight impaled random Cadians. There is this woman dancing around doing this sort of ritual... That looks like she's interacting with unseen monsters, and they still hang around for a while. It's only when she starts going, "and we got to sacrifice someone else now," that he goes, "No!" <laughs> and he's got a teleport beacon
0: with him, so he's like, "Well, this is obviously a big no-no." And the Oculus Imperator—that's the the what the Emperor's watchdog—needs to come down here, and we need to take Lorgar into custody. So he hits his teleport beacon. But it's being blocked, and Lordar just says, "Yeah, we thought you might do that."
1: <laughs> yeah, and this is one of the problems I have with the book, if I'm being quite frank, is they so they kill this guy. Fine, you know. Again, he's in a room with a Primarch and a bunch of Legionaries. He takes a few out, but then he goes down. But then. Later, after this ritual is all done, like Ingefeld becomes a monster, becomes a you know possessed, and they get back up to the ship. And Aquilon, the leader of the Custodes, is like, "Oh yeah, you know, like you said, he just died defending Lorgar from a bunch of barbarian tribesmen with wooden weapons." Yeah, I believe that.
0: <laughs> yeah, they, they they tell Aquilon that that the Custodes name was Vendata. That then was stabbed in the throat with a wooden spear, and I was like, "That no, that wouldn't happen. That would take for you would have to have like tens of millions of of people armed with wooden spears, and it would take like a year and a half to wear out this custodes to the point where he gets stabbed in the neck with a
1: spear."
2: Yeah it's it's weird i mean one of the things i want to we've got ahead in the actual timeline but not the actual narrative because so sorry i'm doing two thoughts came out brain at the same time there the actual fight itself like i can see how they could describe it because they can say oh look we lost all these other marines as well like this one guy gets really lucky because there's always that lucky shot and that's basically what they're trying to sell the thing on is like this guy got really lucky with a wooden stick like, I'm sorry, your commander failed that the three ones in a row. <laughs> like,
0: oh, you know what? From a tabletop perspective, it is totally plausible.
1: Yeah, you know, but my thing again, though, is just I think Aquilon just takes that a little too quickly. You know, once he hears it, like once Argil like, "Yeah, that's what happened." He goes, "Okay." <laughs>
0: It's it's pretty suspicious. It's a little thin. I'm going to agree with you there, but
2: we the, also the story
0: needs to go on.
2: I, I presume that some sort of communique was launched and no comment was come back. So they were like, well, I guess we'll just stay here.
0: Well, and you you have to wonder is like did Aqualon do any kind of autopsy on this guy? Did they just perform the funeral rite or whatever they do with the dead custodians? Mm. Um it's it's a little it's a little strange, but uh, there is some back and forth because the the later scenes that we get into, it's actually we start off at the end of this yeah. this story arc, and then it is the rest of the story arc is Argil Tal telling the story to Lorgar. So there's a lot of jumping back and forth in the timeline here.
2: Yeah, it's one of the important things. There's very little of the story told in real time. So most of the stuff we've already discussed was actually Argil tall talking to Cyrene. And then most of this section of the book is Algol talking to Logar.
1: We get some fascinating views on warp fuckery here, for lack of a better term, because they take this this small frigate and fly into the warp storm and they're inside the warp storm for seven months and they come back out and they're like, it's been about 45 seconds since you left.
2: Yeah. And oh. Into this flight into the warp storm, they take something they, they call the special equipment. It's a giant demon that's possessed the priestess, um, mm-hmm. who they still refer to as her name. They just refer to as the Ascended now. Um yeah, Ingefell, yeah. It's Ingethel the Ascended now. Um, is the priestess still in there, or is it now just a giant demon? Who knows? She may become a demon prince. Yeah, I'm going to go with it's
1: just a giant demon.
0: Well, yeah. the, the, the story... This... This character picks up in another short story later on. But we'll, we'll get into that when we get there. Yeah.
2: Um, I think one of the important things that happens while they're in the warp storm, there are several moments of time messing around. Obviously, they're in there for seven months, but really it's like a couple of seconds to the people outside. But while they're talking to the demon, the demon pulls all of the word bearers on a journey through time and space. Mm-hmm. And, and we see
0: yeah we see several different scenes here
2: yeah they shoot through some really key scenes through the establishment of the imperium the birth of the primarchs they visit
1: the birth the of Farl- slanesh well, yeah, yeah the I destruction see,
0: but, of the the eldar yeah. empire and the birth of slanesh and that's yeah. that's where this wound in reality comes from this is the birthmark or the, the birth scar of slanesh yeah when the yeah. when the eldar empire died in decadence Slaanesh was born and consumed the majority of their souls and it, it left this gaping wound in reality throughout the universe.
2: Yeah. Like we also just-
1: see that it's actually the word bearers responsible for kind of throwing the the Primarchs across the galaxy in a weird way. That they I would, do these tra- yeah. time travel into the Emperor's gene vaults, it's like they are physically there, but also they're not, and it gets very
2: murky
0: how much of it is what the chaos gods want you to see and feel
2: yeah given later reveals i'm pretty sure this whole thing is like made up i think a lot of this is just them being shown what the chaos gods want them to see which is mostly the truth but with that extra like let's change this a little bit here and here
1: but this is not the the first time we see like like when Horace gets transported there. He also like he actually fights the custodes in that room. Uh, so it every time we end up in this place, it's just like they're it's weird because again they're there, but they're not there. And yeah, I I am a hundred percent certain that there's a lot of again, for lack of a better term, warp fuckery going yeah.
2: on. They, basically, they realize that the Emperor has stolen the power of the true gods to make the Primarchs, and they're keeping mm-hmm. the Primarchs away with a gellerfield device. So they destroy the ge- gellerfield device, and it, the Primarchs scatter. But this is actually one of my favorite scenes in the book, because it then describes the arrival of every Primarch to their planet.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: No names, M- just a very...
0: Mo- most of them. Not all yeah. of
1: them.
2: Yeah, most of them. A lot of them.
1: That was one of the things. I actually listened to this a few different times because I wanted to go back and figure out which ones exactly they were. So we get, like, the lion. Although they do miss a key tidbit there. The lion is blonde. They describe it as black hair. Um, Which threw me off the first time I listened to it because I was like, hold on, who is that? But it can't be anybody else. Um, We get Conrad Kurz. I think one of the few that we don't get is Gilliman. I remember.
0: So it's it's the Lion and all the Traitor Primarchs. We don't see any of the loyalists. So I th- that's I was going to point this out. I thought it was interesting that we got the Lion and Altharius Omegon, uh, Omegon, and all the other Traitor Primarchs. So they leave in the ambiguity of the Dark Angels and the Alpha Legion being either loyalists or traitors along with all the other Traitor Primarchs. The the one that I had the and this is why I think it's this is the Chaos God showing the word bearers what they want to see is because this, uh, the, the one of Fulgrim is not consistent with a Fulgrim short story we get later on in the books. When Fulgrim is found, he is a baby. And th- he is um, found in the radiation wastes of his home planet by the, a couple of people. And he is a perfect baby out in raw radiation, but he's still alive and in this descriptor that we get in the first heretic he is like an adolescent child basically but in the the i think the more canon story that we get later on the more kind of fulgrim centric story that we get he is found as a baby not as a small child
1: yeah they're not perfect uh by any means the conrad kerr's one is not how that's been described either because like in the way I've always heard it described is like he actually gets driven under the crust of the earth and has to like claw his way out. And that doesn't happen here. Um, Although I, that's kind of one of my smaller nitpicks about this book is I don't like how they depict Conrad Kurz because he almost seems like a bit noble. And I'm like, that that doesn't sound like evil Batman at all. (laughs) Yeah,
0: no. uh, And that's, again, that's why I think it's the chaos God showing us what we want to see almost.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, it, I, I like to say I enjoy the scene. Mm-hmm. I do take the entire sequence with like a giant grain of salt.
1: Sure. Yeah, um, and then we get to the point where the demon is like, "Yeah, if you really want to get into things, why don't you drop the Geller field?" Which should have been the party stopper right there. That is just a terrible idea. Yeah. Once not... again, we see just how loyal Argol Tal is to his Primarch.
2: Yeah, because he realizes this is this is what the Primarch would want. Let's get this party started and they destroy the Geller field. They don't just turn it off, they destroy it.
1: Well yeah, I mean they discuss the fact that like there's no way the ship's captain is just gonna turn off the Geller field. So they destroy it. And also I, I do appreciate that Argotal definitely has a moment where he's like, all right, we've we've reached a point of no return in doing this. And then, because again, the loyalty to to Lorgar, he just he says, "Okay, we're at that point, and presses straight on. Um, and what happens is that Ingefell essentially just kills them all. So, you know that that went well.
2: But they get better. They
1: they got better.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Ingefell killed me. Yeah, but got better they. Obviously, as they come back to life, um, mm-hmm. a friend joins them, and yeah. we, we get that reference at this point that all of them feel, like, different, and as we cu- keep cutting to Argel uh, Carl car- right? Al- oh, oh, oh. describing the events, he will go off on tangents about information he shouldn't know like, about the decadence of the Elder. And, like, he'll just mm-hmm. start, and it's like, he like, I'm not sure where that knowledge came from.
1: Yeah, and constantly, as he's talking to Lorgar, Lorgar will be like, your facial expression is a snarl, or, you know, your your voice sounds different, or things like that. Or he keeps saying, we are Argyl-tull.
2: Um Yeah, and they're all deeply, because they were abandoned for seven months. They didn't have supplies. So the survivors ate those that died. (laughs) And he's like, and he's continually talking about wanting to feel the blood of Astartes again. Like it tasted so good. Um, Mm. Which is wonderfully creepy.
1: Interesting thing. After, you know, he kind of gets out of this session with Lorgar, he goes, uh, because he's actually become fairly good friends with Aquilon, uh, and they duel each other a lot and he goes down there and the first thing he does is he asks uh aquilon hey can i take your buddy's guardian spear and fight you with that and Aquilon says uh no you may not um i did find this Custodes who took a vow of silence while he was with the wordbearer fleets he's actually my favorite one of them all <laughs> um, but you know he explains oh you know it, the weapons are gene coded to us and also like they're hand gifted to us by the emperor. So no, we're not gonna, not going to give that to you, but they, they begin fight dueling and Aquilon puts him down a few times and then he starts to feel a bit better and he starts putting Aquilon down and they're like, this isn't right. Like you've never beat Aquilon before. But he is now. So they're like, there's something very different going on. But still
2: the custodies bury their heads in the sand and they're like, it's all fine. Well, this is this is where they say everything's fine. We never actually really get a good point of view from the custodies. And what happens next is that Logar decides that he's gonna go on his own pilgrimage, he's gonna go into the warp storm with the Demon, do his own thing. Mm-hmm. But he's not gonna tell the custodies he's doing that. No, he tells them that he's going back to the main fleet. And the Custodes are like, well, we'll stay here. And I think part of it is that Aquilon, because he is the head honcho, is like, I'm going to stay here to keep an eye on what that guy's doing. Mm-hmm. I do not trust what Argyle become, and I need to stay here.
1: Well, he says, like, he trusts Argyll Tall, but also he does not. He's like, of all the word bearers, the only one I trust is Argyll Tall. But also, he's... He's still shady. He's just less shady than the rest of them from his point of view. Um, And yeah, Lorgar does end up slipping away and going on a fine jaunt through the eye of terror. And then we jump uh, like, I think they said 47 years into the future or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the word bearers have just been the model Legion up to this point. But one thing they talk about is they say, we need to make sure that the custodies are not communicating with Terra about what we're up to. So let them think that they're doing it, but nothing needs to get out of the fleet. And Chaplain Zephon is like, got it. No problem. Take, I'll, I'll take care of it.
2: And Chaplain Desmond was also like, we can't just kill them. I'm under orders. Yeah. They can't die. We're going to keep them safe. We're going to run around. We're going to keep them isolated from the rest of the word bearers. And we're going to do our thing. Mhm. And they do. Yeah.
1: And that's what they do for the next almost 50 years until we jump forward pretty much to the point of uh, Istvan is kind of where we are.
2: Yeah, they it's halfway through a comply this they're in a compliance of this human civilization that's taken genetic material on. It's a really good little battle. Yeah, um, it's again all about the combined arms and the spear tip strike that space marines excel in and then things start going sideways.
1: we should probably step back a bit um just for a second here lorgar honors these guys uh, of, of all the the serrated sun that came mm-hmm. out of the eye of terror there were only 47 left yes and he says you guys are to be honored you're going to be my right hand functionally um and he names them the gal vorbeck and at this point Argyll also becomes the chapter master of the serrated sun. They paint their armour crimson, and they also get told that at the God's appointed hour, their transformation will come. And in this compliance that they're conducting, they all start to feel, hey, this hour is getting getting close.
2: Yeah, and the Galvor back, I mean, very particularly, are the forty eight survivors from the trip.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it can be lost somewhere in heresy law that the only actual Galvorbeck as it is are these survivors
1: yeah, and maybe after we get done I after we get done discussing the general plot of the book, I'd love to deep dive more into what the Galvorbeck are mm-hmm. as compared to other yeah. marines who undergo similar things because they are truly unique mm-hmm. in I, I think all of warhammer you know from 30k up through 40k i don't think that anything like this happens really again um so we can we can kind of dig into that a little bit at you know after we're done with the plot
0: right um uh so at this point just before this compliance campaign we're also introduced to a new character and it's it's late in the book but it's right where the other remembrancers show up in the timeline so while this character shows up late it does make sense timeline wise we're introduced to Ishek Kadin, who is a photographer remembrancer who has been assigned to the word bearers fleet to remember the uh, great Crusade or whatever and my only problem with this character is is that he doesn't fulfill a role that, another character could not already do. He's just brought on to take pictures and then he's set up to take evidence of betrayal back to Terra. And I think that you could have combined this character with Xenu73 because, and this is just my my headcanon, or this is, uh, I think, uh, a more um, ice or a condensed way that these characters could have been handled. Xenu-73, early in the book, when he is introduced, says that he's a little distressed about how Incarnadine, his um, cybernetic um, automaton, is reacting to the Legion. He's distressed about that. So I think that there could have been more character drama if Xenu-73 is having kind of misgivings about the Legion. And then when the Dropsite Massacre comes around, he somehow uncovers data of the legion betraying the emperor. And then he gets it to the custodies instead of this random remembrancer that's introduced at the end of the book. I just think, I think he's, um, Eshack is in the book. Um, he's not in the book long enough to set up being like this, uh, kind of connective tissue character. Another character that is in the book longer would have been better place to do so.
1: I think that's a fair assessment. Um, it's just kind of speaking to, you know, efficiency of the space of the pages, I guess. Um, multiple different ways. I don't particularly have a problem with how his character was executed. But yeah, I, I, I do think that's a fair critique. Um, anywho. So should we, we jump forward to Istvan here a bit? Uh, they, they kill... I, I do enjoy in the palace... Room as all these, you know, word bearers are freaking out about, you know, are they going to change or the custodians going to see all of this stuff. And there's just that fat Empress girl whimpering and she's like yelling at her palace guard to protect her. And they just pick her up and toss her across the room, <laughs> which I got, I got a good chuckle out of that. I thought that mm-hmm. was pretty funny. And the, the, like the main palace guard, he gets written up. He's like, I'm going to land one blow on these guys. I know I can't kill them. And they're like, yeah, no, you're not. No. <laughs>
0: he
1: doesn't he doesn't even realise that
0: he died only like three inches away from the lower half of his body.
1: Yeah. It, no, yeah. it's three meters away yeah. from the lower half of his body. Yeah. It's it, it, halfway across the room.
2: Yeah. It's a solid scene. It's a solid uh, but obviously the main take home is the fact that the Galbor back awoke and became something different. Mm-hmm. Um then they all go back to their ship, and they have to pretend to the custodies that they have not changed. They go into seclusion.
0: Well, and at this around this point, they receive word that Horace has turned from the emperor, mm-hmm. and they have to mobilize for a counteroffensive at Istvan Five.
1: Yeah, and after their seclusion, uh, there the seclusion is good because it uh, you get a lot of time with Cyrene. And she's kind of like, she's like oddly okay with like Argletal functionally turning into a demon in her room. Um, She's very, very sanguine about that. Um, But it's, I think it's a good character moment there between the two of them um, as that takes place and then kind of recedes and Argletal is able to retake his, his more human form. And then they come up with this plan of how they're going to attack Istvan, and they go to the custodians and say, "Hey, we want you guys to be commanding some of the ships, um, you know, in case they get boarded." And on the backside of that, though, they're looking at the ships and saying, "You guys are going to get delayed, <laughs> delayed in the warp, uh, yeah. so that we can go do our thing without the custodians being
2: there." Yeah, I think there's um, a couple of really important scenes on this drive, di- sort of the, on the road to Istvan. Part, part of that is putting the custodians in check. The other part is Ogletal talking to the chaplain, Zephon, and being like, Hey, are we sure this is... Are, are we good? And he's like, yeah, I'm mm-hmm. just back from the Iron Warriors. They're on board. And, like, Erebus has been doing great. And he's... As the conversation goes, was like, This isn't the Aurelian's plan. This is Erebus's plan, Right. And it's like, well, I guess. But it doesn't matter. We're, we're doing it. Erebus has been doing a lot of the writing recently. It's all good. Erebus is a top-class bloke.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoy the... Yeah, Erebus has been doing a lot of the writing lately, and it's fantastic stuff. Real great work. <laughs> uh, you know, it it actually... It, we dig into that a little bit more during the Dropsite Massacre when Lorgar is sitting there watching Ferris and Fulgrim fight... And he's like, this really isn't what I was going for. And Corferon and Erebus are both like, nah, it's fine. This is great.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. Lorgar's like, they're going to kill each other. And corferon's just like, what did you expect,
1: idiot? This was your plan. Yeah, but it really wasn't his plan. It no. Wasn't, as we've discussed, it wasn't his plan at all.
2: Well, I think there's this. There's another moment. And I think we should loop back before they drop. On the road, we finally get to outside the Istvan system. On the Istavan system, we've got the moon of Istvan, and the first wave have gone in, the most headstrong legionnaires of the Iron Hands, the Raven Guard, and the Salamanders. And everyone else is having a meeting about what they're going to do. All the noblest of reinforcements. Uh.
1: I, yeah, I, I actually really enjoy this scene. Like, Lorgar gets to proselytize a bit, and it, he gives... I mean, what he's known for, which is a really good speech. Uh, One of my favorite moments in this is where um, it goes to Sevatar and he like gives Argyltal the warrior's handshake and then he spoke the words that would echo through 10,000 years, death to the false emperor. Like really just well executed writing there.
0: Yeah, it's a great scene because he says it once and then in seconds, everybody is chanting it.
2: Yeah, but it's, by this point in, like, the Black Library history, ADB has written the, black, the trilogy of books about the Night Lords, And Sevitar mm. is continually talked about as this awesome figure. And we don't actually get a decent Sevitar novel in the Horus Heresy series. So this is, like, one yeah, of those which moments... which is unfortunate. Yeah, it's... But this is one of those moments to let ADB go to town with his favourite legion. And you yeah. just see it. And it's a great scene. It's... The only person in the scene I don't like is their depictant of Perturabo and the Iron Warriors. They're a little I don't know. I don't like it either. I don't think it quite hits the mark. No.
0: I do love the line and it shows up in multiple books when one of the Word Bearers captains calls in the Iron Warriors like, "Hey, you're shelling our position." And the Iron Warriors just radio back, "We're all dying here today, brother." And he laughs and hangs up the phone. <laughs>
1: That's very Iron Warriors, but no, I agree. On the ship there they get a little too like jazzed up mm-hmm. about it. And I'm like, we're not killing any Imperial fists here. Nobody's getting excited.
2: <laughs> yeah. And but the, you know, is it is a great scene and everyone gets to their sign and we get the death of the false emperor. And then we get the actual drop. And I it's played out really well. Oh my god, it's amazing. It's so well done. Um, this is
1: this is what I wanted from the drop site massacre out of Fulgrim. Mm -hmm. Obviously it's told from the other side of the Urgal depression and done very well, but man, this is so good.
0: The, the scene where the word bearers are, are holding at their position and the Raven guard are walking back and the Raven guard captain is radioing an Argyle tall saying like, we're on our way back for a resupply and we're not going to steal all your glory. You guys can get some of the action too. Just being like a, a total battle brother to Argyle Tall. And Argyle Tall has this kind of inner monologue like, is this what we're doing? Is this why we're here? He's looking me in the eye like I'm his battle brother. Yeah. And this Raven Guard's like, why isn't he saying anything back? And the Raven Guard, this captain, radios Argyle Tall like, so what's your plan of attack? And before anything else can happen, Argo Tull says, all word bearers, open fire.
1: No, and- that's not what he says first.
2: What he says first is, brother, forgive me, all word bearers, open fire. Oh shit, I forgot fire. about that. Yeah, well, because there's a whole sequence while he's staring down the Raven Guard commander that he has the whole flashback to him being picked up as a space marine. He remembers his sisters giving him the wristband that he's still wearing. And like, it mm-hmm. is that moment, like, he is about to issue the Order of the Betrayal. No one else has done it yet on the front. Our Sterling it's, Honorable Commander is about to betray.
1: It is It is kind of a theme in this book. Of once again, we reach this point of no return. And because he is so loyal and honor, honorable in that way, he presses straight forward.
0: And Lor- Lorgar has a very similar moment uh, in, a, in a couple more pages of having uh, a similar scene where he sees Korax tearing apart the Galvorback and he moves to charge and Korfairon and Erebus try to stop him and they're like you, you know your fate has been foretold if you face the Lord of Ravens today you will die and Lorgar pulls away and says my life is my own and so is my death and charges towards Korax, and they have their epic duel
2: which is a totally rebellious thing. Like the theme, as we've kept on seeing whenever we had the Aurelian logo on screen, that it's been, hey, I'm being told what to do by by my stepdad. This is the moment that he's been crushed by the betrayal. He's realized what he's done. This wasn't his plan. I'm out. I'm done.
1: Yeah, and uh, another interesting thing too of um is uh the the demon that is reached sim. Symb- that is symbiotic with Argol Tal. Uh, Ral, has said, "You know, we're going to die under black wings, and
0: we die in the shadow of great wings."
1: Yeah, and he sees Korax out there, and Ral says it again, and he says, "All right, well, we're going forward anyway," and goes to engage Korax, uh, and yeah, Korax is just tearing through. This is actually a good. One of the first good scenes I think we've ever had with with Korax, Um, funnily enough. Yeah, I mean, uh, he has not had his time in the sun
2: yet. It describes him being an absolute crazy murderer. And we don't get that. We don't even get that in his books. I mean, I'm not going to lie. This is the best depiction of Korax we've had in a while. Um,
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and it, it also lends to later post heresy Korax's favorite hobby. And we kind of get an understanding of exactly why that is his favorite hobby.
2: <laughs> Potential. We'll see where they end up going.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I, I think that this scene here is a better core than we get later on in the, in the series. Uh, I think uh, Aaron Dembski Bowden nails a lot of the characters in this book. So it's, it's very well done. Yeah. And well,
1: uh, it, it kind of makes me think as well, to uh, the game and horus heresy 1.0 where you had pre-estevan korax and post Esteban korax and how everybody was like post-estevan korax is terrible well this is pre Esteban korax and he is an absolute blender <laughs> he's got
0: all of his war gear it talks about how he's like using his jump pack to stabilize himself when he's getting knocked around on the battlefield. And he's also got these metallic wings he's using to cut dudes in half. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, but he's not it's... only stabilizing himself, but he's also turning and incinerating people with his jump pack as well. Yeah.
2: No, it's, it's, it's definitely... For a Warhammer book, the book is actually pretty light on battles. Mm-hmm. Big, long, uh, big fight scenes. And this is definitely that premier chapter-long fight scene. And it's really nice.
1: Not for nothing though, but I think that's what makes the book so good is that it's light on battles, but when there are battles, they all are executed very well. I think that's a major praise that we can give this book.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then sort of it wraps up really quickly. Yeah. Uh, It's only a chapter and then we're in the sort of, oh, that's done. Yeah. And... Then the custodies show up.
1: The the custodies show up, they're like, There's no way that just the our four ships happened to be the ones that were delayed. They're like, There's something going on here. They run into this remembrancer who just so happens to have taken a picture of this chaos ritual. And they look at that and they're like, What the hell? And they're like they they look at Aquilon, they're like, All right, where are we going? And he's like, We're going to the one place where all these word bearers have been confessing their sins. For all these years. And they run up to. Cyrene's room. Now the blessed lady. She has been for a while. And. They cut their way. Into her room. And. Basically execute her. uh, But not before. Getting attacked by an automaton.
0: Right. Xenu 73 and Incarnadine. Are there running like guard
1: duty. But the custodes cut them down right away. Well, I I do love that scene because zenu 73 comes out and it's like you need to stop and they're like you have no business being here and he's like I don't, but he does. <laughs> and he's got the,
2: he's got Incarnadine already with spooled up heavy bolters. Yeah, and Incarnadine of doesn't just go down. There's a whole sequence where it's like he kills two
1: custodies,
2: And then his machine spirit like hangs on like that machine spirit is on the way to being something not nice. Yeah. It,
0: And they talk about how the the Legion has inducted a few of these automatons into their ranks, their honorary legionaries. And when uh, Incarnadine goes to attack the custodes, it says, "For the Legion, (sighs) not for Mars." You know, not reciting some kind of binary code; it's swearing to the Legion.
1: Well, so Argiltal goes ahead and takes what's left of the Galvor back. Which isn't much. I guess we should talk about Lorgar fighting Korax. He gets rescued by the Night Haunter,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Um, which I thought was a good, good rescue, um, and I, I, I kind of appreciated that it was it was him that did it because I know it's not specifically that, but like I do kind of view Conrad Kurz as the inverse to Korax, a bit. So I, I, I enjoyed that it was actually him that that ended up rescuing Lorgar and then he was just kind of like, don't mention it. And
0: Well, no, on. it wasn't like, don't mention it. It was just like, you make me sick. Get off the ground, idiot.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. And when Conrad Kurz is telling you you're a loser, man, you've sunk low. <laughs> anyway. So they, they book it back up to the ship. They find the blessed lady has been ran through by Aquilon. And then, they chase the Custodes through the ship who end up jumping on their own Thunderhawk that they brought back up from Istvan and trying to get away. It gets shot down. It kind of lands, my understanding is like on the other side of the continent from the Urgal Depression. The Galvorback follow him down. They square off with the Custodes. And one of the things that uh, I, I really love in this scene is when you know the Custodes are like, you've thrown away... You know they see the Galvor back for what they are now, um, which is these possessed Marines. And they say, you know, you've thrown off everything that makes you human. And this fascinating thing that I I love from them is they say we were never human. Um, and I, I that, that speaks on so many levels to like not just the fact that they're possessed, but like what the Astartes are. They really are not human.
2: Yeah, I mean it's one of those things that gets jammed in from the start of the book that even Cyrene at the start is referring to them as angels. Mm-hmm. They are the grandsons of the Emperor, and they get ascribed that continually by themselves. But the Emperor is a god, and if the Emperor is a god, then so are we. We are a vision of that.
1: I, uh... The, the, the battle... It's, it's described well uh, once again, because you know, one of the custodies slices off the head of one of the Galvorback, but he's still coming at him because who needs a head? And so he ends up having to literally cut him limb from limb, but in doing so leaves himself open to get jumped on from the back. Then those two Galvorback get caught by Aquilon because they're attacking the other custodies, but that allows Aquilon to get caught by Argontal. Tall um so it, it really is just a, a series of guards being dropped and that being capitalized on or else they never would have gotten through yeah and then the last custodies. i can't remember what his name is
2: the one who doesn't uh, speak
1: yeah he doesn't yeah. speak but then right at the very end right before he dies he just goes i've always hated you <laughs> yeah well he calls out
2: particularly the chaplain
0: <laughs> yeah yeah Safe on. he's like I've always hated you,
1: Zephan. And yeah. it's like and then he dies.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's a really good. So um the one thing that's revealed at that point is that they they've been sacrificing psychers basically every couple of months to keep Yeah. the uh, it's just, it's
0: about um, very rarely did one last more than a month. So every month they're sacrificing these psychers to uh, into some sort of kind of warp engineered device. So anytime the custodians tried to send out a astropathic message, it got absorbed by the Psyker. And that's why the
1: uh,
0: custodians never got a message out. Yeah.
1: One interesting note of that that I, I, I picked up on was when they, they talk about the more willing the astropath mm-hmm. was to be sacrificed, the less the least amount of time they lasted. Yeah. It was um. almost as if the gods wanted the suffering
2: yeah, my, my other favorite little twist there was that the other custodies, the other ones who've been in the other fleets, have all died by that point. They've all met mm-hmm. with accidents and they've all been wiped out. And um, Erebus is like, oh, I'm glad you kept some alive. I wanted them.
0: Right, because Erebus wants them to, and this kind of ties back into Nemesis, uh, Erebus wants the closest genetic material possible to the Emperor to try and assassinate the Emperor. We talk about that a lot in Nemesis, mm-hmm. uh, the previous book. But Argyle Tall is there making Planetfall to go chase down the Custodies? He's like, I'm gonna give a shit what this Ar- <laughs> wants. We're gonna kill every single one of them because yeah. they killed Cyrene. Yeah. And the the funny part about the Cyrene scene is that when Argyle Tall finds her body, she's still alive for a, for a couple of minutes. And it talks about how she was run through with Aqualon's sword. And if you've ever seen the Custodies model with the great sword, it is as wide as a human torso, and she was run through with that and she was still alive just kind of funny
2: well
1: yes well you get, you got to have that dramatic end
2: <clears throat> yes
0: yeah oh yeah yeah but it's just it's a little funny to me
2: no um i think the only other thing to mention really before the 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 wrap up ortals talking to the other legionaries about you know oh we're ready to move ahead with this and then there was the realisation that they've never had a purge of their own ranks. That yeah. um, quietly over the last 40 years, the chaplains have been doing away with any loyalists in the Legion. Mm-hmm. And then there's that feeling of like, oh, we did what? And that's almost where the book ends with them heading off to Calf.
0: Well, and it's, it's important to say is that the word bearers were planning this for 40 years... Horace didn't plan to thin his ranks, but for a, a handful mm-hmm. of years. So where they did it all in one massive stroke, the word bearers were able to do it and still, they were still able to convert more than they had to dispose of. Mm-hmm. So they maintained a ton of their numbers doing so.
1: Yeah. I don't think it was a lot that they ended up getting rid of. You know, it doesn't seem like it was all that many. Yeah. Uh, I actually only recently found out that there were any loyalist word bearers during the heresy. <laughs> I thought that they had all gone mm-hmm. traitor. Um, it's one of the things I love about them.
2: <laughs> well, I, but, mean, uh, I mean, I think as yeah. we moved, move towards the close up, I think that's one of the key points that gets driven home. The driven home with the point of Tall, is that it's a really good point of view story from a bunch of fanatics. The words faith mm-hmm. are thrown around a lot of faith and religion, and we can have debates about that all day these guys are not about the religion. They are about loyalty to an idea, to the word. They are fanatics. Mm-hmm. They are the definition of fanatics. And it's subtle.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and that's that's kind of where our, our story ends here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, real quick, I kind of want to delve into the Galvor back. Mm-hmm more specifically because i they're just so interesting to me because of of all you know we we, t- we see people and Astartes get possessed by demons especially moving forward from here but we never see again what these 47 space marines did which is truly well for the most part we don't see it again uh but to truly achieve like a it's a symbiotic relationship with the demon that is inside of them.
0: Yeah, I think it's because they had 40 years to basically incubate and it's a much more symbiotic relationship than what we see a lot in in the later heresy and going into uh, 40k is that it, it tends to be a much more brutal, kind of subjugation of a demon, more or less. In this context, they are melded into a single soul, almost. Like uh, I guess Lordar says that Argotol has two souls, but they are intertwined more closely than what we would see going forward.
2: Yeah, I think it's definitely something to talk about at length when you've been introduced to the Varakajal in Betrayer. I think the compare and contrast between those two is a really good idea of the difference.
1: Well, we'll have to do that. Yeah. Um, so I guess to, to kind of put a nice bow on this thing here, overall thoughts of the book here, uh, Warwick, let's start with you.
0: I think it's great. I think I voiced my only concerns is that uh, uh, some of the lesser characters like uh, Xenu73 and... Um, uh, Ishak are treated just kind of like connective tissue. When if you had, I, I just think that more work could have been done with them. Ishak is introduced way too late in the book. I understand he serves his purpose. I think that there would have been better character drama if Xenu73 had maybe started to have some misgivings of the Legion and gone his own way. Um, it, and it, even if there had been a story element of like he was contacted by, um, the Dark Mechanicum and then like, we're going to side with the War Master and kind of given him some more reason to side with the Legion than stay loyal to the Emperor. It would have kind of soothed me a little more. I think as it's written, it's just a little loose and I can live with that. I think it's a great story either way.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's my I can my criticism with the book is that it does feel short. It's not one of the long running time books. As far as I listen to all my books, which I prefer to listen. But um, I Definitely think that that was deliberate. Um, We've got the short story, The Aurelian, that comes up later. Um, It was released not long after it, but it didn't appear in the actual books until much later. And it talks about the whole adventures of Logar when he leaves the ship and goes into the the Eye of Terror himself. And it feels like it should have belonged in this book. It would have been that bit where he goes off and then he meets up with Magnus again after the uh, the Burning
1: of Prospero. No, the
2: Dropsite Massacre as well.
1: Dropsite Massacre, okay. Yeah, and a lot of
2: it's in him and Fulgrim talk as well after the Dropsite Massacre, and there's a lot of stuff set right at that moment. So, like, sh- a couple of extra scenes are sort of missing from the book and are found in that story. Um. <clears throat> yeah,
1: I, I definitely agree. I think it was a bit too short, um, but... that just speaks to how much I enjoyed it as well. Mm -hmm. I didn't want the book to end. I I thought it wasn't, I I was enjoying the story and I was completely wrapped up in it, which um, I I don't get from a ton of these books. You know, I I enjoy most of them, but none of them really get to me at that point, especially about one of my least favorite legions. Uh, If I'm just being quite straightforward, I, I don't enjoy the word bearers, but this really made me enjoy the word bearers. Um, uh, so I mean, overall, uh, this is, uh, one of the top books of the heresy for me, um, of the series. So we're also going to get into another excellent one on our next book episode, uh, going to be jumping across the galaxy back to Prospero, uh, with our old pals, the space wolves in Prospero burns by... Warwick's absolute favorite author, Dan Abnett.
0: Dan Abnett's not perfect. He is one of my favorites, (laughs) but he is not perfect. And I'm actually reading two books in preparation for Prospero Burns. I'll be reading Prospero Burns and Eaters of the Dead by Michael Crichton, Mm -hmm. uh, because they're very, they're very similar stories. And uh, the, there's a movie 13th warrior with Antonio Banderas that is, yeah, very, yeah, Martin knows what I'm talking about.
1: (laughs) Bulvai. Yes. Bulvai's my
2: dude.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Bulvai is is king.
2: Yeah. Um, I just want to say sort of finishing up here, that I actually think the thing that makes this book so good is the fact that the word bearers are not comic book villains in it. The word bearers are continually cast as the mustache-twirling comic book villains of the stories.
0: I was about to say that exact thing, um, like the um, the the Admiral from uh, Battle for the Abyss. He's just he's just an evil guy.
2: Yeah. I mean, I play Wordbearers, and I play it up. I've got my Marshal Theodosius, and I've always done a mustache on him at times. Because, you know, you play it up, you ham it up at times. And the 40k universe is great for that hamming it up. But this is the story. If you want to do a, like a deep drama on betrayal, this is where you go. And it makes them actually... You can see the ticking of thoughts that makes these guys who started the book worship the emperor as a god. And then were told not to. So they went and found gods that they could worship. Even if they probably shouldn't have done. But it doesn't matter because they exist. They exist.
0: Right. And I think it's, the the word bearers were definitely looking for something to, like, something, I don't want to say physical, but tangible to believe in. I mean, they could have believed in the imperial truth. They just chose not to. They wanted to find something that... You know, the Imperial Truth is is this kind of dogma or this text, but they wanted something that would speak back to them. And when they get to the Eye of Terra, that's Terror, that's what they find.
2: Well, I mean, this thing, I mean, the Imperial Truth is a lie. We get that bombarded all the time. We know it's lies, we read it. In fact, later books even refer to the Emperor realizing that even his grand plan's a bit of a lie and it's not going to work. Logar is completely motivated to find the truth, and he finds the truth, and there's part of him that hates it. It's an unethical, horrible thing. But he is programmed to be the preacher, the theist. So it doesn't matter if the gods are horrible and useless. He worships them because they're there.
0: And maybe maybe that's why he sides with Horus in the end, because he sees that there is that vision out there that if Horus wins, he sees what he has done and he turns on humanity and... Maybe that's
2: maybe that's well, why I mean,
0: lorgar says that's the I don't know. I don't think it, Horus we'll never Hor- find out. I don't think because Horus we know will, what happens to Horus.
2: I don't think Horus really sides with the Emperor. I don't think Hor he sides with Horus more as that he makes Horus side with him.
0: Oh yeah, fair enough. Like yeah.
2: he decides and then just like, okay, well, we're gonna do this. Um I don't know later there is drama on that front where he thinks he should be the one in charge, but
0: <laughs> well, uh here's yeah, there's always something funny that happens when you're dealing with these chaos emissaries is that, um, Ingethel tells Lorgar you were always our first choice. They say the same thing to Horus. And I'm pretty sure it's call Banda says the same thing to Sanguinius. They're they, always and they lying.
1: To, and they say that to Magnus.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. They, they say, um, Zeesh says it to Magnus directly. He's like, you're always our first choice. Yeah. If, if, um, because you, you didn't accept, we we have to work with Horus now, and it's like they're always lying to you, mm-hmm.
2: yeah, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter because at the but it doesn't matter to Logar because at the end of the day, they are the gods, so he will worship them regardless, yeah, and so will the rest of the word bearers. Um, mm-hmm.
1: which, you know. all right, well, should we uh, should we get wrapped up here and yeah.
2: uh,
1: go ahead and call it an evening?
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. This has been an absolute blast. Martin, you are awesome to have on. I can't wait to do it again. Where can people find you?
2: Okay, you can find me on the Fires of Betrayal podcast. Podcast about all things Horus RSC, though we're mostly at the moment talking about the wonderful new epic I put out. We're doing reviews of the reveals as they appear. um, Though I've got a really good podcast coming out at the end of the week, probably which is me and my buddy talking spoiler-tastic about the current state of Horus Heresy, particularly in the Siege of Terror, which you guys are a long way from, but um, yeah.
0: Yeah, we will get there when we get there. we got plenty of content to work on. Yep. So, folks, why don't you go ahead and check us out on Twitter at LegionCast a Horus Heresy podcast and shoot us an email at LegionCast18 at gmail.com we love hearing from our fans and until next time
1: we'll see you then Yep. thanks for stopping by everybody and remember to march in Fortune